you were interviewing comedians when you were in high school, much like Cameron Crowe was interviewing rock stars. Yes. And and then made a movie about a kid interviewing rock stars. You were yeah. literally the almost famous character, but with comedians. The difference between me and him is he wanted to interview his heroes, so he went on the road with Led Zeppelin, <laughs> and I took a train to Poughkeepsie to see Weird Al Yankovic. <laughs> Hey everybody, it's Mike Birbiglia. We are back with a new episode of Working It Out. That, of course, is the voice of Judd Apatow, the great Judd Apatow, who has a new book out. Uh, before we begin our conversation today, I want to mention a few upcoming shows. Couldn't be more excited about my run of shows in Chicago at the Steppenwolf Theater for the month of May. Uh, I'll, I'll be performing The Old Man and the Pool uh, I'm doing a show at the Ace Hotel in Los Angeles on May 4th as part of the Netflix festival. And then I'm uh, I'm doing a whole run of shows. I'm, I'm at the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles for the month of August doing the full old man in the pool with the set design and the lighting design. And it's gonna be it's gonna be so cool. It's like an incredible theater. Today on the show we have Judd Apatow. Judd is a three-time returning champion to working it out. Uh, he is, uh, he's a good friend. He's given me notes on the old man in the pool and he has a new book out. It's called Sicker in the Head. It is a sequel to the hit book, Sick in the Head, conversations about life and comedy. I couldn't recommend it more highly. All of the author's net proceeds are donated to 826 National, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing free tutoring and literacy programs. Uh, we've donated to them here on the show in the past. Um, Judd needs no introduction. He has directed, he directed me in the movie Trainwreck. He directed 40-Year-Old Virgin. He ver directed This Is 40. He's produced super bad bridesmaids, you know, just on and on, freaks and geeks. It's such a great conversation. He sort of turns the tables on me and asks me a lot of questions, uh, which may end up uh, uh, in the paperback version of this very book, Sicker in the Head. Get the book, it's on the bestseller list, and enjoy my conversation with the great Judd Apatow. Of all of the casts you've worked with over the years, I was in one of them, I was in Trainwreck, uh, it, Freaks and Geeks and Bridesmaids and, and, uh, and 40 Year Old Virgin, all these movies, and television shows. I mean, undeclared. I mean, like, who's the cast mm -hmm. who you'd love to hang with again? Like, who's the reunion cast you want to get together? Uh, the reunion cast. I mean, I have to say, it was really fun making a movie with Sandler. Oh, my gosh, yes. I always wanted to have that experience of directing Adam. Yes, because you were friends, you were roommates in your 20s. We were roommates, and we did a lot of stand-up together, and I tried to help him with some sketches. I was never an official writer on Saturday Night Live, but I would work on things with yeah. him. And then I did some just punch-ups on some of his movies, but I never had that full experience. And I was nervous about it because I thought, does Adam <laughs> listen to you? I mean, he's very successful. Can he just say no? Can halfway through the shoot, can he go, I've decided to change everything in the movie. Oh I just gosh. didn't know how he would handle being in the hands of, of someone else. Even though I knew he had done that and he really enjoys sure. you know, doing something with James Brooks or Paul Thomas Paul Anderson. Paul Thomas Anderson, sure. Uh, Punch Drunk Love. Yeah. And then he was just amazing. Just so fun and hilarious and very prepared. Oh there were some gosh. emotional scenes where he got very upset about being sick and he he would just show up and he was just there. Like I didn't have to direct him, I, I would mold the scene a little bit, but he was always, the acting was fantastic. He's a tremendous actor. Yeah. I mean, obviously he got a lot, like he got a lot of awards attention for Uncut Gems, but like meanwhile, he's been making great movies for like a million years. Well, I remember when we lived together, he had just graduated from NYU where he studied drama. Yeah. I mean, he took acting and I didn't know what that even was. Yeah. So I'm, you know, 20 years old and I'm like, what, what happens in an acting class? I didn't do any of that. No kidding. I was... Young. Right, you were straight from the comedy club universe because your mom worked at a comedy club, and you were, and you were, and this goes back to the roots of Sicker in the Head. You were interviewing comedians when you were in high school, much like 
Cameron Crowe was interviewing rock stars. Yes. And and then made a movie about a kid interviewing rock stars. You were yeah. literally the almost famous character, but with comedians. The difference between me and him is he wanted to interview his hero, so he went on the road with Led Zeppelin, <laughs> and I took a train to Poughkeepsie to see Weird Al Yankovic, <laughs> which I don't regret. It was one of the great nights of my life, and he's a great man. But his was a little cooler. He did Leonard Skinner and, yeah. and, and all of that. And we talk about it in the book, me and Cameron Crowe, this yeah. idea of loving something so much you want to get closer to it. Oh, my gosh, And yes. now with this new book, really, it's about wanting to talk to people who do what you do and and say to them, how are you doing? How are you holding up? How are you keeping your career going? Yes. Are you crazy? Do you feel sane? Are you gaining any wisdom? Like what, what is your yes. journey about? And especially doing interviews during the pandemic, people were very open to Oh, that's really introspection, that. yeah. Yes, and that's why for this, we thought, well, we always do a soft cover and we add four more for the soft cover, that this could be yes. a conversation with you that yes. would go in the soft cover nice. version. I just made it under the wire for the soft cover. <laughs> well, I was just on Seth Meyers and I said, I didn't interview you for the book. And he, <laughs> he pretended to be insulted. And I said, I could do it right now. We could start getting that ready. And then I said, what trauma oh, made yes. you want to go into comedy? And he went, I don't want to be in the book. Oh, that's really <laughs> that funny. That was the joke. <laughs> that's very funny. <laughs> and then we didn't talk about it anymore. Yeah, I mean, comedians are, interviewing comedians is pretty interesting because there's inevitably, if it's not trauma, it's definitely something extreme. Something is happening. <laughs> Something's going on. Right? There's no natural route to comedy. No. I mean, there's smart people. Like Seth Meyers seems like a genuinely smart person. And one of my favorite things in the Gary Shandling documentary is this moment where they're sitting on a park bench and he says, I don't understand this thing about, I'm paraphrasing, Jerry's saying about how... Uh, you have to be messed up to be oh, funny. Yeah, yeah. Of what about talent? Can you just be talented? Yeah. yeah. And then Gary goes, "Why are you so angry?" Yeah. And, and so everyone has something. Even Jerry, I I produced one of his stand-up specials. Yeah. There were some documentary pieces in there, and he says when he was young that his parents really left him to his own devices. devices they, yeah. They trusted him and treated him in a very adult way at a young age, and he became super self-sufficient. And if you see Jerry or talk to Jerry. He's very confident. Yes. He believes in all his opinions very that's strongly. True. Yeah. And maybe that's a type of parenting that led to a way of observing the world. That's right. And what do you think? And and what is what do you think it is for you? What, what was the break that led you where you are? Which, by the way, is you, <laughs> we were joking about it before we started, but like you're so productive, it's almost dangerous. Yeah, there's something wrong going. <laughs> there's something on. wrong. You're, there's a broke. There's a brokenness. Yeah. If during the pandemic I make a documentary, a book, and a movie, yes, in an 18 month period, in everyone's break. It, yeah, I mean, I thought I was on a break. Yeah, that's the weirdest part. Yeah, because I didn't even see it as a period where I was busy. Yes, which is just me being crazy. The good thing is, because I think I have a similar thing. I mean. In the pandemic, I did virtual shows and I created a podcast. I mean, it was like I did everything you could do comedy. I on. interviewed eighty-seven people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but like, yeah, no, I, I think a lot of it, a lot of the, the thing that you and I have in common is we just need to have a pen handy. Yeah. To write it all, write it all down, and discipline ourselves to do it yeah. a few hours a day. And what was the moment when you were a kid where you thought comedy seems interesting and Maybe a job. When I was a kid, I would make plays at school. Like, mm -hmm. this is how audacious I was as yeah. a kid. And this, I think, came from my mom encouraging me, which is a very positive sort of anti-trauma thing, very positive thing. She gave me the confidence to be like, I would write a play, and I'd go to the teacher and say, I'd like to perform this play. I'm in third grade. <laughs> I'd like to perform this play about hamburgers. That's a Rushmore. Yeah, it's a straight out of Rushmore, yeah. And uh, and then at a certain point, you know, when I was in high school, my brother Joe took me to see Stephen Wright live at the Cape Cod Melody Tent, his first com live comedy show. And for me, it was explosive, you know. It was probably similar to when you saw, when your mom took you to see stand-up comedians in Long Island for the first time. Yeah. 
I just couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that this person was saying these things that were so mind expanding. And I remember the moment he did the Tonight Show because they had him on, I think, a week or two later. Yes, that's right. Which seemed insane. Yes, he's that. He was that good. Yeah, he's that good. And and so then I of course yeah, I feel like the illusion of stand up comedy of course is that you see someone who's a stand up comedian who's great, and you go, that's exactly what I think. <laughs> and you don't realize that actually it's hours and hours of the person writing and revising and writing and revising and cutting stuff to get to a point where they're making you feel that way. Yeah. But yeah. before you realize it was stand up, so you were young and precocious. Yeah, it was and, just precocious artist, creator kind of thing. And smart. Was yep. your dad a doctor? Dad's a doctor, mom's a nurse, yeah. yeah. What? What? Neurologist. Yeah. Yeah. And so. You come from smart, I would assume, reasonably nice parents. Smart, smart folks. My mom yeah. is my mom is salt of the earth, like mm -hmm. one of the kindest people. One of these like gives Christianity a good name kind of people, yeah. where you go like, well, she is a Christian. They must be doing something, right? <laughs> she doesn't beat the shit out of anybody. <laughs> yes, exactly. What does it feel like when your dad is doing procedures on brains. Like my- Listen to the procedures though. He's, he, brain surgeons and neurologists yeah. work hand in hand. Yeah. Brain surgeons get in the head. Yeah. They open up the head and they make the big bucks. Yeah. The neurologist consults. He's the one who's figuring out what they What's saw going on. in the head. Parkinson's, MS, yes. all these really, really hard, and, hard diseases. And did you understand as a kid- no. That what he was doing at all? What did, no. he, what did he bring home and explain to you at like 13 of what his days were like? The th zero. Because the <laughs> he thought you couldn't handle it maybe? Probably, yeah. I yeah. mean, my dad would come home, I would say very late at night. I mean, he would come home eight, nine o'clock at night for sure. And like, mm -hmm. and so I feel like um, most of my childhood was spent with my mom. And the thing that I remember that was really uh I recently started doing crossword puzzles. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because the New York Times crossword puzzle. And the reason I do it is um, my dad used to do it every day. So that that's all you you'd yeah. just see him at the at thing. He'd read war novels and he'd do the crossword puzzle. And it'd make you happy. And he would just do it start to finish. And it was clearly some kind of therapeutic activity for him. And now that I do the crossword puzzle, I totally get it. Because you it have something calms like you that. Down? Does it calm yeah, you yeah. down? Yeah. But did you ever, like say high school, 16, 17, were you ever aware of what he was treating and what he was so one with? So one time we had a thing in middle and grade school called Science Club. And uh, every Friday night, what nerds we were, <laughs> Science Club. Yeah. And uh, every Friday night. And then one night it was, he was the designated speaker and he brought, his tools, you know, he got the medical toolkit, took out all the instruments, showed what they did. Uh, he brought like a brain, a demo, uh, you know, brain, uh, not a skull, but like a, you know, plastic brain and showed mm -hmm. the different parts, the cerebellum and all the cortexes and things. And I just thought like, wow, my dad does all this stuff. Like, <laughs> he never mentioned this yeah, to I me. Yeah, just thought he was like, Cortex. Yeah, he never thought he was, says that. I just thought he was really mad about stuff all the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> He's stressed. He's stressed. But then, it, and then, so then that was a positive thing, science club. And then the other positive thing was every now and then someone would come up to me, a group in Shrewsbury, Mass, outside of Worcester, and uh, a patient would come up and go, Your dad is, is, is one of the best doctors, of, or if not the best doctor I've ever seen in my entire life. And, and it was very, they were very moved by him. Mm -hmm. So I was like, Okay, well, he must be doing good work. I don't know. Yeah. And when you went to college, you where, where were you at? You were at Georgetown. At Georgetown. Yeah. Did you enter Georgetown knowing you were going to go into something creative or writing or performing? I went into Georgetown looking for sketch comedy. Yeah. Because I loved SNL. <laughs> I made a movie yeah. about <laughs> SNL. Well, wanted... Maybe love is not a strong enough word. Obsessed. <laughs> Obsessed. Um, the uh, has Lord Michaels ever acknowledged the movie? No, but he's he's always very nice. Yes. Whenever I run into him, he's always very yeah. friendly, which is nice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, have, I have a great we, deal of respect for him and the institution. Sure. I mean, what's funny about it is like, I it, it was like I wanted to be a sketch comedian, 
And in college, I did improv and stand-up and realized, oh, no, I'm a stand-up comedian. Yeah. And that's but, a weird thing. But, but it is a, you know, it's a ballsy thing to say, I'm going to go to one of the finest universities in our country and yes. use it to become a sketch player. It's absurd. And especially at that time, I don't think people thought there was a lot of job opportunities. So if you didn't get on Saturday Night Live, what do you even think the sketch job is? No, as a matter of fact, like I was studying screenwriting in college and I thought I'm going to be a screenwriter. And then I got towards the end of college and I realized uh, you can't go on monster.com and type in screenwriter. <laughs> Nobody wants them. I mean, you you dealt with this, I'm sure, where you're just going like, well, how do you m make movies and like... Yeah. You know, uh, Gary Shandling, or you know, gave you a shot to direct. If I'm not mistaken, was it was his idea for you to yeah, direct? Yeah, I, I would have never asked, and I didn't even want to write movies. I don't think I just thought there's no stand-up major. Yeah, so I studied screenwriting, but the opposite of you, I didn't think I was going to do it. Yeah, I just thought I'll learn something that'll teach me something. But I was more into stand-up, and I loved Harold Ramis, so I was aware that there was some sort of writing performing job yeah that might exist and i loved woody allen yeah and barry levinson so i don't know i guess it wouldn't hurt to know this yes but i didn't take it very seriously yeah and so i so studying screenwriting and and then at a certain point i got a job working the door at the washington dc improv comedy club which is one of the best clubs in the country which is by the way pure luck i mean the same way that like your mom worked at a comedy club and so you got to see all these comics young I worked at the door of a comedy club. It just so happened to be one of the best comedy clubs in America. It's just yeah. lucky. But were you thinking you were going to do stand-up when you got that job or you were still a sketch guy and this was a good way to make some money while working on that? I just, I wanted to see comedy and I couldn't afford it. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember like first few weeks of college, I was like, what's, I'm going to see some live comedy in Washington, yeah. D.C. <laughs> When's Milton Berle get to town? So I went to see... I don't think I've ever told the story. I went to see Flip Orley, comic hypnotist at the I Washington, D.C. I love the comic hypnotist. It was, a, it was brilliant. <laughs> it was brilliant. I, I laughed so hard. It was so funny. And, and it's, of course, it's this great club, Washington, D.C. Improv. And I got the bill with all the drinks and everything. Like it's like ninety five dollars. Like you know what I mean. Like I don't know what it was. It was so much money. I was like, this is all the money I have for the semester. I was like, okay, I'm never gonna go to a comedy club again. Okay. So I didn't go to that comedy club for another year. And then there was the funniest person on campus contest, and I, I entered. Nick Kroll entered, who I didn't know at the time. A bunch of eight other, yeah. ten other people entered. I won. I'd never done stand up, so one of the prizes was this big giant check for two hundred fifty dollars. A huge check like this big. And then uh, the chance to perform and open for someone at the Washington, D.C. Improv. So they said, we have this person coming, we have this person coming, we have Dave Chappelle coming. I was like, oh, Dave Chappelle, I love his stand-up. <laughs> this is, of course, way before Chappelle's show. This is before the superstar. This is when Chappelle's probably in his 20s. This is, yeah, he was 24. Weeks before Half-Baked came out, actually. So he's 24 years old and yep. you're 18 I'm like or 19. 19. And... I'm open for Dave, and uh, which was a master class even when he was 24. You're going, oh, my God. Yeah. This guy's like, <laughs> this is genius. What for some people, the height. Yeah. Because <laughs> he had young, crazy, hilarious, brilliant guy energy as a young man like Sandler when, when they're yes, young. like Sandler. And before like Sandler. they've yeah. seen and done so much, sometimes there's a, a hilarious, hilarious yeah. Aspect to it that you don't get to hold on to. No, no, and it was it was beyond brilliant. And I just said to the club, I just begged them, like, please let me perform here again. And how do you do though? I did okay. Yeah. Like I was like, what's so funny your is second time doing stand. -up. Yeah, second time doing stand -up ever. And I was I was still doing characters. Yeah, so you're like, doing it, sketch as a stand up. Give me one of the characters. Oh my god, it was. This is so painful. <laughs> so, so the character that I was this guy from Boston, and it was, um, you know, Marty, like my name's Marty Beckman, and I love partying, I love this. I love, he's just leaning into the Boston yeah. accent. It's very like similar to like Fallon and Dratch doing those Boston yeah. accent characters. Mm -hmm. yeah. I would just do that character for like 10 minutes <laughs> and it would kill. Like it sure. would do really well. Yeah. 
And and then I started doing, uh, I did like a seventh grade science teacher. Paul Fink uh, used to do that. He used to do the shop teacher. Oh, is that right? With the missing finger. Mine was based on this, this eighth or ninth grade science teacher I had named Mr. Rutan, who people were so mean to, who was so nice, such a nice guy. And people used to throw pennies at his head and stuff like that. It was like awful. <laughs> and I just, I thought, I always thought like, that's an interesting character to play. Like, he'd be like, hello, welcome to class. Please stop throwing pennies at my head. Like, it was like ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, so I would play these multiple characters. And then at a certain point I was like, I'm not, I literally had this feeling of like, I'm not that good at these characters. Like I, like I know when people are good at characters, yeah. I do improv. I was in the improv group at that point. And that's not me. But me talking in between the characters, that's pretty good. It's funny how that happens for people because there's a lot of singers that become comedians because their patter is funny. Yes. Or a magician right. who drops the tricks. That's right. Right? The it, magician that, drops the tricks. I mean, Toadie Fields was a singer. Yeah. And at some point, the patter was entertaining people more than than the song. Yeah, so I used to do characters and then I started doing like regular stand-up and the big thing was, and this is similar to your experience in Long Island, is like getting to watch George Lopez and Margaret Cho and Jake Johansson and Brian Regan and Jim Gaffigan and Mitch Hedberg and David Tell. There's nothing that you could compare to that. Yeah. That's Just the getting education. to see them. Yeah, and, and also watching that do six, seven shows over a weekend yes, and yes. seeing really how they're doing it and watching the different performances and the way they change it up and where they're improvising, oh where they're not. You don't even know what you're learning. Your brain is just a supercomputer picking something up. I always say this to aspiring comedians is work at a comedy club. Get a job at a comedy club just so you can watch so many comedians. You know, there's so many clubs. There's like 20, 25 clubs. Like, Denver Comedy Works or like get a job, just watch all those comics, you know, yeah. watch, you know, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of who's coming through town. Watch Beth Stelling. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, that's why. Watch our, Atsuko Akatsuk, all these people, phenomenal. I mean, our, that's why it's what's so funny about our stories being similar is I did that but I was a dishwasher at a comedy club yeah. when I was 15 and realized I couldn't see the show because I was in the kitchen. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah. so I, I switched to busboy after like four months. Yeah. Because I was like, this plan isn't working because I'm in the kitchen. I was a door person and I, I'll tell you something funny about the door person. I've never, this, I've never told this story. Um, there was another door person. I forget the guy's name, but what I realized at a certain point is that he was embezzling money from the club. <laughs> he had a scam. Everyone's got a scam in a restaurant. Holy cow. I, I, I'd never, <laughs> I, I've, I've never, other than like, I think I stole something from the, from the uh, pharmacy on my corner when I was like 10 years old yeah. and I got caught and I went back and apologized and my <laughs> mom caught me. Other than that, I've never stolen anything. I'm like very like focused. I have a certain, you know, I see things a certain way and I go, and and this guy one day goes, if they show up late and they don't have tickets, you just get their money in cash and you put them at a table. So this guy was pocketing like three, four hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I'm not doing that. You're fucking crazy. Like it is yeah. inconceivable that you'd be embezzling money from a club. Yeah, well, we had a friend who did that at restaurants where he would toss the checks in the garbage when people paid in cash because people used to pay in cash. No way. And then just, it was called check kiting, I think was the name. Never even heard of that. Yeah, and so they would maybe like once or twice a night just keep the money from a table and toss the wow the bill before it was credit cards. and Yeah. And there's so many ways to steal. We'll go over those later. Support for Mike Birbiglia's Working It Out comes from Helix Sleep. Helix has been with this podcast from the very beginning. We are huge Helix mattress fans over here. Let me tell you a few things that are great about Helix Sleep mattresses. They are fiberglass free. Unlike other brands, Helix mattresses do not contain fiberglass, which can be harmful to your health, as you may have seen in the news or on social media. There have been a number of health issues and lawsuits related to fiberglass and mattresses. You know, actually, I used to, I used to have a mattress that was pure fiberglass. It was just, it was literally a bed of fiberglass. No longer. 
I sleep on Helix mattresses, which are fiberglass-free. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash burbigs. That's helixsleep.com slash burbigs. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long with Helix. Better sleep starts now. No, now. Working It Out is supported by Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. I should point out that this is an ad for Squarespace, but I love Squarespace. I was thrilled when they became an advertiser because we've used them for years. Our website for Thank God for Jokes was Squarespace. Our website for Stand Up and Vote was Squarespace. Couldn't recommend it more highly. We use it all the time. Start a completely personalized website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint. You can sell exclusive content on your site by adding a paywall to sell memberships or courses, or sell files your customers can download like PDFs, music, or eBooks. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, head to squarespace.com slash burbigs, B-I-R-B-I-G-S, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash burbigs to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. And so so you're so you basically are doing stand-up, you graduate from school, you do a yeah. lot of improv at school yep. with Kroll eventually. Yep, yep. Gaffigan also? Gaffigan's different era. He's the 80s, from the 80s. And so you're doing a stand-up group, and then school ends, right? School ends. And now it's like, I need to get a job. I need, this has to pay now. Yep. Did it pay ever during college? During college, yeah. So I would, I would some, I would make about 50 bucks a set or 40 bucks, 50 bucks a a set, but I wasn't doing that many sets. I mean, I, if I was lucky, I'd get like, 10, 15 sets a semester. Yeah. And you you went where when school ended to go, I'm going to be a comedian. I'm going to New York City. I lived in my sister Gina's couch for a period of time. I lived with a roommate in Queens for a period of time. Then I lived with my girlfriend at the time. Day job? Day job was uh, just temping at um, one of the places was Pfizer. Mm-hmm. And, and they've done um, some good work. They've done some good work. I I did not do any of that work. Their work lives in me. <laughs> I that's right. It lives in me too. It's extraordinary. That company's amazing. The amount of dead wood at the bottom, where, uh, which was what <laughs> I was, is extraordinary. I mean, they have such deep pockets. They don't even know. I feel like who they're paying after a while. Like I was salespeople. I, I was making like fourteen, fifteen bucks an hour in the early two thousands, doing like nothing. But supposedly doing what? Supposedly being an assistant to someone. Who's doing something? Who does something? Like literally, yeah. I can't even tell you to this day. And so you're like doing spots in New York. Yep. Till late at night. I was in the comic strip. The first, the first club worker who gave me a shot was this guy Lucian Hole. Yeah. Uh, who passed away a, a bunch of years ago from a from an autoimmune disease, and he um, gave a lot of people their yep. first break. Sandler. Sandler. Rock. Rock. Uh-huh. Um, well, Maybe Eddie Murphy, although Eddie Murphy, I think, was successful by the time he got to there. Um, but I think Seinfeld actually, he was, oh no. So Seinfeld was so successful that actually Seinfeld would, at the comic strip in, on the Upper East Side, yeah. where, where I was passed with Lucian, would decide whether comedians were passed and could work at the club. Did you ever hear that? He would just say his opinion, and that would be powerful. He would audition them, apparently. That's what Lucian yeah. told me. Like a period of time in the 80s where Jerry Seinfeld would audition the comedians. <laughs> like, what? I'm, I'm sure he was tough. He was v- v- tough and fair. I mean, I remember one of the biggest moments in my young career was I was bringing on Jerry at the Improv, and I just talked for a while before I brought him on. I just wanted him to see a couple oh my of my gosh. jokes oh like my you gosh. do. And he got up on stage and went, that was funny. Oh, that's nice. And during really uh, a time where I wasn't getting much done, that was uh, fuel. Oh, that's huge. Because I knew he meant it. And I knew he wouldn't say it. Like he seemed oh, genuinely nice. tickled by a, a couple of He's things. He's impeccable with his word. And so you start going on the lives, road lives a little by bit. The four agreements. So then I started going on the road. Yeah. You're yes. middling. You're I was hosting. middling. I was hosting and middling. Yeah. I was. Um, I was essentially taking any work that would pay me two hundred. 
bucks a week essentially. Yeah. And and I was I was keeping a very meticulous calendar of how many hundreds of dollars I was making each week because I knew that I needed to make about eleven hundred dollars in a month. Yeah. To continue living in my that's, that's, in that's my like apartment in Queens. Yeah. Like for me too. My rent, bucks. my rent was four twenty five. Mm-hmm. And so if I can make eight hundred bucks, yeah. I had food. Yep. I could pay for gas. Yep. And that was it. And that's kind of the fun part of a young comedian's life is if you have a couple of places that'll throw you a little cash and you're willing to live very cheaply. Very cheaply, yeah. You can have fun. Yeah. It, you know, if the clubs will occasionally throw you a hamburger. That's really funny. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. So I was at the I was at the comic strip and then eventually Gotham Comedy Club. Caroline's, Caroline's was a big break because they have a, a kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so to speak to your thing about food, yeah. like you'd go like, oh my God, they give you a chicken sandwich? Fettuccine Alfredo? Forget about it. This is like luxury. <laughs> I remember the improv, they throw me a fettuccine Alfredo at the end of the night. Oh my gosh. Every night I'd eat an entire fettuccine Alfredo. Sometimes I'd ask for double pasta in it. And then I'd go, <laughs> right, pasta. I'd go right to sleep. That fettuccine oh is still in my heart. <laughs> and so when you were starting and you were doing jokes and at some point you realized that you were a storyteller. Yeah, yeah. When did that happen where you found what is your style? Because your style, you know how you know you're like one of the greats is because people can do an impression of you. <laughs> you know, like a, like, a, like a smart person can do your cadence and... You you know you have yeah. almost and dare I say like a Cosby esque oh no like uh, and I say that as if <laughs> as it, though nothing happened as in the if last nothing forty happened, years but if we could just talk you yeah, know, yeah. In, in rhythms and that you've you've created your own way of doing it and and that's really impossible to do there's very few people I think who have found something where like music you go oh that's what that band sounds like well I think so part of it is that I. I was asked to tell a story for the moth mm. when I was about 24 years old. And the moth is this, of course, great storytelling series that n- now is like a popular public radio show and podcast. They have a book, et cetera, um, multiple books. But at the time it was a storytelling series in New York and they asked me to tell a story and, and Catherine Burns coached me through this story that was very embarrassing that ended up in my girlfriend's boyfriend special about how when I was in high school, I had my first girlfriend and she told me not to tell anyone that (laughs) I was her boyfriend. (laughs) It's embarrassing telling it now still (laughs) because she had another boyfriend, but he didn't. It's kind of sexy. Oh God, it's terrible. (laughs) And then it gets embarrassing because she invites me to meet her parents and I'm so excited and I meet her parents and then this other guy's there and I realize it's her other, it's her boyfriend. And then he invites all of us to go to his house. I meet his parents and then the punchline of the whole thing is it's very nerve wracking meeting your girlfriend's boyfriend's parents for the first time because (laughs) part of you is angry and then part of you wants still wants to make a good impression. How old is, is this? It's like high school senior? So that was, yeah, high school senior, yeah. I don't know if you're allowed to say this anymore, but that is like a very dirty young woman who liked to live a life of she was of treachery. She, uh, uh, like she, she, she had a double life. She liked. She was turned on by having it be insidious yeah. and semi-criminal. Her sex life. Her fake name in the story is Amanda. Her real name I will, I will not say. But it um, starts with an A. I, I, I know it does. <laughs> I know you didn't go that far oh, from gosh. it. It's but, Andrea. We know but, it's Andrea. No, I, I I will not cast a judgment on her except to say. I'm saying I'm in awe. Yeah, yeah. To be running two guys in senior year of high school. <laughs> running two guys. <laughs> didn't Charles Corral have two families? You know, that's what she was doing. Oh, my God. She, she was double family. She had double family. <laughs> so, so I tell that story. It was at Aspen Comedy Festival in, I want to say, 2003 for The Moth. And she's at the show. <laughs> she's at the, no, I've never spoken to her since. Never? It's very oh. odd. No, and I've never, very rarely as an adult have I gone down the fa- the Facebook rabbit hole of like, where yeah. are these people? But one time yeah. I was like, why don't I look her up, see if she's around? Nothing. I Google her, nothing. I'm like, oh, okay. She's. I think she's gone from the universe well, for me. 
No, she has a new last name. She's married. Yeah, certainly. She has a second family somewhere else. Third or fourth she family. She somehow found a way to have children she, with both families and not get caught. She has a fifth and sixth family. <laughs> <laughs> she's like that Inventing Anna character. Yeah. But they were those kids like in high school. There were certain people that they really loved to cheat. Yeah, no, it was pretty wild. Like the degree to which high school kids develop at a different yeah. rate is very funny. Yeah. Well, that was what Paul Feig's whole thing about Freaks and Geeks, with Freaks and Geeks was. Some kids wanted to grow up fast. Some kids didn't want to grow up and were like hanging on by their nails to stay children. Oh, that's interesting. And that's what he wrote. I found I found his original notes. No kidding. And I put some of it in the book in oh the photos gosh. page. But that's what he said. It, 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 that, it was the difference between wanting to grow up faster or slower. Oh, my gosh, yes. And the geeks loved being kids. Yes. And everyone else was like trying to get in the world. Oh my gosh. And so you realize after the moth that you you wrote a story really well. It's like having a teacher show you something. Yeah. And then you think, I got all sorts of stories. Did did what that it, hit you? That's what it is. It it was I did the story and then I go, okay, so this connection with these this audience is deeper. Yeah. Than what I'm doing normally. And what I'm doing normally is pretty good. Yeah, I'd done yeah. Letterman, like I was doing pretty well. And so I was like, let me go down this rabbit hole. And then the and then sort of the breakout story for me was the sleepwalking through a second yeah. story window story because it was so Ira Glass who eventually put it on This American Life and that sort of broke me in that universe. Um, he always says like, it's the story that you can't follow in your own, own life. Well, we only have so many great personal stories yes. that happen to us, yes. right? And so that's just a... Well, it's so, it's so on the nose as a metaphor. We're yeah. sleepwalking through our lives, and yeah. our li our lives are out of our own control, and yeah. all these different things about it that speak to like a larger truth about things. So I started telling that story, and that was back when that was Mulaney was at this point. I was doing a college tour uh, for Comedy Central. I had just opened for like one of my first big breaks was I opened for Mitch Hedberg, wow. Louis Black, and Dave Attell on the first ever Comedy Central live tour. And you were the host. I was the host on for like wow. Philadelphia, DC, New York, Beacon Theater, which is wow. wild, wild. So like I just called the promoter and I just go like, I'll do it for free. <laughs> and he's like, well, well, we can give you 75 bucks. And like, they probably would have paid someone a thousand dollars to do it. <laughs> I'm like, I'll do it for nothing. I, I just <laughs> love these comics. I'll do anything. To, to see to work with these comics, I still do that. I mean, I uh, it doesn't mean as much. <laughs> yes, I don't need the fifty dollars as much. But when I was young, I was always in a car driving three hours to see something or perform on something. Yeah, I never really cared about that as long as I could eat a, a little yeah, the bit. Eating is key. But but to get in those situations where you you think it's all about the experience. It's all about oh, I'm gonna get to watch. Mitch Hedberg every uh, yeah, night? I've never, I because I'm such a fan of comedy, I've never driven a hard bargain when it comes yeah. to getting to be around comedy I love. And what, uh, at that point, what was Hedberg like? I mean, Hedberg was definitely on drugs. Um, yeah, there was stuff going on with Mitch, and I sort of knew there was some drugs, and, mm -hmm. and I would sort of just try to do my thing, which is, in, I'd be like, hey, let's play tennis. Let's go bowling, <laughs> you know, like... And and we would always sort of make plans and and I you know I've had other addict friends over the years and he would sort of inevitably like break a lot of plans, yeah. which was always very sad to me. Oh sure, terrible. And so when he passed, it you know it was devastating. Like everybody with addict friends, it's it's you know it's always devastating. You try and figure out what could I have done and. Well, I think we're a part of a breed of corny people. Yeah, we're corny comics. Like we're afraid of some of that stuff. Most yeah, I've of never that done. Stuff. I've never used coke. I've never used coke. Yeah, yeah. I'm, too, on, I'm on, way too afraid of it. I'm on stimulants. I'm on Vyvanse. <laughs> clearly. Vyvanse. Can I be the Vyvanse guy? Do I do commercials for Vyvanse? Is that right? I've never felt clearer with Vyvanse. Oh my God. And I'm able to fall asleep after an eight hour lay down. Oh my God. So you realize that there were more stories to tell. And you were on the road when you had yeah, the incident. The when, you when I had the incident of jumping through the window. So, yeah. yeah. So when I when that happened a few months later, so by opening for Mitch Hedberg and Louis Black and David Tell, 
Comedy Central gave me my own like college tour. It was called the Medium Man on Campus Tour. Mm. And actually, Mulaney opened for me on the tour. We got a tour bus. It was so strange. We got this big tour bus. And uh, on that tour, I literally still have the footage somewhere. I started telling the sleepwalking story. And immediately it did pretty well. Yeah. Like it was like, oh, this is, even though this story is crazy yeah. and really far out, like, this definitely works. Yeah. And that was like, oh, gosh, 2004, 2005. And then I developed Sleepwalk With Me, this show, for about four years. Uh, literally years of working with Seth Barish, my director. And then we, and then along the way, like Nathan Lane came to a show of mine at Caroline's one night and I was doing the material from what became Sleepwalk With Me. And he and I became friends and he said, and I said, I want to do this as a theater show. And he said he would consider presenting it, you know, putting yeah. his name on it. Did you ever have anybody from the theater helping you know how to write a piece like that? Only pretty much my screenwriting and playwriting professor, John Glavin, and uh, who suggested I write a solo show, by the way. Yeah. So he was my screenwriting professor and I would talk to him maybe once a year, once every two years after college. And he, and at one point he just goes, yeah, I think you just have to write a solo play because there's no budget. You know, it's basically free if you can get a stage. You know how to write a play. And so I just, I wrote Sleepwalk With Me and brought it to Seth Barish and Seth Barish helped me kind of hone it into what became Sleepwalk With Me. And then Nathan Lane presented it, which which completely, completely in hindsight changed my career entirely. Some incredible anointed you. Yes. And you, and so you need you need the professor to say this is the road you go down because if yep. not you're just going to turn it into your new stand up set. That's right. And then you need a professional actor legend yep. to say this is worth paying attention to and then you do the work but also I I've always found that uh most people don't do that work. I mean there were people who did one person shows but you're you're really putting years the way uh you know someone writes a play into these literally pieces. years yeah and it requires you know uh an ability to stay focused and not lose your sense of what you're doing over many years it's yeah. like writing hamilton you know you you have to not lose touch with what interested you about it and cuz you cuz you craft it line by line you're every night it's like you're testing yeah every bit of it and i think that is why there really aren't that many people. I mean, other than you and Colin Quinn, there's not a lot of people really busting out these types yeah, of it's like, performances. There's, a, there's Hasan Minaj. Yes, yeah. Hannah Gadsby. There's only like a few people who are working in the space of like, and right now Alex Edelman, mm -hmm. who I'm presenting his show, are working in this space of what some people call like an Edinburgh show. And what can you accomplish in that format that you can't when you're just doing a comedy club or a theater <laughs> yeah. as a comedian. I ask myself every day. Um, <laughs> so it's lonelier in it's a way. Lo it is lonelier because a longer track. Yeah. It's so it takes so long. You know, like I'm in the middle of writing old the old man in the pool right now. I was just at Berkeley Rep. I'm in at Steppenwolf in May. I'm in, I'm uh, at Mark Taper Forum in the month of August and then hopefully it'll go to Broadway. Hopefully. Um, and, uh, it takes years and years and years. And like you said, like you have to stay focused on, in this case, this is a show about life, death, mortality. And, you know, the idea that we're, you know, the, 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 the phrase, I'm 43 now. And the phrase for middle age is over the hill. And I never <laughs> understood the phrase till I got on the hill yeah. and I'm looking around, I'm going, oh, there's natural causes, you know, there's diabetes. <laughs> you know? And it's like, it's wild, it, and it's like, and I'm trying to, as best as possible, in the show, bring people into my shoes, regardless of what age they are. Yeah, and make it enjoyable to think about the big stuff. Yeah, and not a depressing night, and not it's a night not depressing at all. Yeah, yeah, but that's but that's the the trick of it, which is let's go to the place where that we're not always comfortable going. Yes, and we'll we'll connect, and we'll laugh, and we'll exchange. Yes. Our feelings about this. Yeah, not only that, this is, and, and, and part of this, by the way, 
you know, part of it, look, I, there's a lot of people I work with. I work with my brother, Joe. I work with Seth. I work with my, my wife, Jen. I work with Peter. Um, but a lot of it is who you, <laughs> they say it's like, it's who you know, but it's also like who you uh, insist on knowing. <laughs> like, yeah. I feel like you and I are friends yeah. for over the years. And it's like, it's like, it's like you've given notes on this show that are directly in the show. Mm-hmm. And a lot of they it- They better I mean, be. <laughs> so I, but I ask, like, I ask, I mean, I think you do too. It's like, I ask my smartest friends, yeah. smartest people I know, what their honest feelings are about yeah. my work. And I'm ready to take it. And there's nothing more fun than helping someone or at least saying, well, here's what I make of it or here's what I might do. Because when you see someone else's show, you get inspired, but then you don't have to be responsible yes, for anything you baby. say. Yeah. Like, like someone said that that's what they thought Shanling loved about mentoring people or giving advice because it, you don't have that pressure of I'm going to bomb with it. Yes. It, it, but you, so sometimes those people can crack it because they don't have that stress or yes. that inner critic and they, they can just see it. There was someone, someone relayed a thing that Alan's Y Bell said recently, which I thought was great. And I love Alan is, um, how can people become jerks in comedy sometimes? Because they lose their sense of wonder. I, yes, I, I, I think that's true. I have that always because I do feel like I never know if anything will work. Yeah. <laughs> you just, you don't know. You no, don't, nobody and you, knows. And you don't know, like, how do you judge it? It's like the bubble comes out and there certainly was some critics that were rough on it. And the crowd seems to really be loving it. And you go, what does that mean? And I went back and I read like the the cable guy reviews. Oh, yeah, now yeah. looking back I now. I love the cable guy like, so much. Like, I don't mean anyone on earth who doesn't like the cable That's guy. That's so funny. In, in 2022. <laughs> I read the review. I mean, it literally was like we were mean spirited. Oh my gosh, and, really? And Jim is menacing. Oh my gosh. And they're talking about each scene that's like the classic scene, like him doing karaoke, as if it's an example of the worst scene ever. Oh my gosh, no. And, and as a person now, I have to go, I've been through this so many times. There's so many things that I've liked. Some of them were loved by the critics and made no money, and then the crowd found them later. Yeah. Some of the critics hated and the crowd, f- crowd found it instantly. Yeah. And then slowly... You get this bounce back of, oh, looking back, we like that one. Yeah, like heavyweights, everyone shit on yeah, heavyweights. Yeah. Oh my god, that's hilarious! And I only hear from people like I watched that forty times as yeah. a kid, and sometimes maybe I'm wrong. Like I'm, I'll never know. I never watched the movie clean. Right. I've been thinking about it for years, so I'll never watch it with the the way a person sees a movie no. that they've never seen. So I'm just guessing it's good. Working It Out is supported by Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one website platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. I should point out that this is an ad for Squarespace, but I love Squarespace. I was thrilled when they became an advertiser because we've used them for years. Our website for Thank God for Jokes was Squarespace. Our website for Stand Up and Vote was Squarespace. Couldn't recommend it more highly. We use it all the time. Start a completely personalized website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint. You can sell exclusive content on your site by adding a paywall to sell memberships or courses, or sell files your customers can download like PDFs, music, or eBooks. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, head to squarespace.com slash burbigs, B-I-R-B-I-G-S, to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash burbigs to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. All right, so we have a question from Alon first. So Alon, if you could come on stage. Hi, Mike. Hi, John. Uh, My question is, when you're having a rough day of writing, how do you get through it without depleting your self-esteem? Oh, wow. How do you get through a rough day of writing? How do you? That's a great question. I mean, it, I, it, I, it's, it's, it's nearly impossible for me to separate the two things. I would mm-hmm. say, and because and, I, I don't have, I, I, don't, I, I think it's just tactics, right? Like I think you and I both have a similar tactic, which is go for a walk. 
<laughs> try to go out and try to grab some sunshine. Or stop. Or stop. Stop Give writing. Up. Give it up. Didn't yep. happen today. Leave some ink in the pen, as Hemingway yeah. says. Sometimes what I'll do when the, the day is terrible, if I'm not stopping, I'll just open up a document and I will just babble. Just <laughs> babble anything that comes to my head because I always think that things just yeah. bubble up and you don't know why, but yep. there's a reason why, but you don't know. Yes. And I'll just start writing, free writing, and you could do a thing where you just say, I'm not going to stop typing for 10 minutes. Yep. And there's always something good in it. And, and that could end the session. And maybe there's Some one Some people call thing that timed it. writing. Yes. A timed writing. 10 minutes, 20 minutes, you set a timer, you put your stuff on airplane mode, and you just write whatever is in your brain, and I do the same thing. And I find it to be wildly therapeutic. And actually, I've written some of my best lines over the years from those timed writings. Because sometimes it's like you write out, you accidentally uh, spill your guts on the page. Yeah. You just let, and wherever it will go. Yes. Sometimes in the morning I do that. The yes. second I wake up, I start writing. Yes. Like this morning, I was like, okay, I'm on Seth Meyers. Hey, Judd, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Oh, what have you been up to? And I just start answering the questions I think he's going to ask me as if we're there. Oh, my gosh. And I was like, oh, I have this he's new book. He's the king of comedy. Sicker in the head. And then, and then he's like, well, I'm not in it. And I, re I remembered he wasn't in yes, it. And I felt yes. bad because he's a genius. Why shouldn't he be in it? And then I said, can I interview you now? And then I just wrote down that his answer would be, sure. And then I would say, what's your trauma? Oh my gosh. And then his response was, and, and he didn't do this joke. I wanted him to say, actually, I had no trauma as a child. And I was supposed to respond, well, that's why I don't want you in the book because you're so damn boring. Oh my gosh. But he said on the show, when I said, what's your trauma? Yes. He said, I don't want to be in your book. I don't want to be in your book. <laughs> so just if, for, for the podcast listeners, if, if, if you're interested in getting sicker in the head and, and you need one thing, one more sales pitch to put you over the top. It includes interviews with Amber Ruffin, Bowen Yang, Cameron Crowe, David Letterman, Ed Templeton, Gary Goldman, Gail King, George Shapiro, Hannah Gadsby, Hasan Minaj, Jeff Tweedy, Jimmy Kimmel, Jen, John Candy, this is gonna take way John too Cleese, long. John Mulaney, Kevin Hart, Lynn Miranda. John Lula Candy Wang. from 1984. Yes. Margaret Cho, <laughs> Mindy Kaling, Mort Saul, Nathan Fielder, Pete Davidson, Rami Youssef, Roger Daltrey, Sasha Baron Cohen, Samantha B. Tignataro, Winnie Cummings, Whoopi Goldberg, and Will Ferrell. And if that doesn't sell you on a book, I don't know what does. There's a great John Cleese interview there where he just talks about how to be creative, like how to get your brain going. Wow. So that would be the best answer is in the book, read the John Cleese chapter. Yes. Because he explains it. But I always have very simple theories of writing. Down up theory, get it down, Yep. then fix it up. So you'll That's give nice. yourself permission to suck. Anything, just That's get nice. something down. Yes, And so then in a different session on another day, go into fix-up mode. That's, That's nice. That's the main thing. Who's yeah. next? Do we got someone yeah, else? Yeah, let's go to the next question. So coming up next, we have Julian. So if Julian could join us on stage. Hey, guys. Um, this is kind of a depressing question, but um, was there ever a moment where you didn't think it was going to work out in comedy? And um, if so, when was like the first moment maybe that fear went away and you kind of felt safe and comfortable where you were at? It's a great question, Julian. It's, uh, I, gosh, I, ne I, I never thought there was any way to fail because my, my um, bar for success was so low. So, so when I worked at the Washington DC improv at the door and I was watching free comedy shows, I was like, I've made it. Yeah. I think that's helpful. I, I, I never had a mega success dream. My dream was, uh, that the other comedians would think I belonged, which I think is still how I generally feel. Oh, that's if could, interesting. If I could hang out at a comedy club and be respected. Yes. And do my thing in the same world that they did their thing. Yeah. That was the mainly the goal, to just be in it. Yes. To be in in the game with people. And I think that's probably a lot of what always drives me. Yeah. If I'm doing any stand-up, I want it to be that if someone watches me in the back of the room, they would feel like I was doing something respectable. Yes. 
And so, you know, when, when people say, oh, I liked your set, or that's very meaningful to me because that's most of the, the dream right yes. there. And then with movies, it's a similar thing. If you make a movie and then another filmmaker says, I like it, uh, that's kind of almost more than my own self-esteem, which is yeah. bad because you do have to have your own internal compass for if you think you're doing good work or bad work. But as a young fanboy comedy nerd, yeah, that's that was always a a driver. And I think that there's always a moment where you think you're not good enough. I mean, I've had that over and over again. Certainly in early days, where you're aware that the people around you are so much better than you. Yeah. But I always thought this takes a long time. And so I <laughs> right. gave myself a long timeline. Yeah, yeah. I thought, oh, it takes like seven years to figure this out. Yeah. So even when I was bad year three, or right. at least not that good, I just thought, well, got four more years to get there. That's interesting. And that was usually what was in uh, my head. Yeah. Yeah, I was talking to Atiko Akatsuka on the podcast about this exact thing, which is, we we're talking about how long does it take to become yourself on stage, yeah. essentially, and like the best theories I've heard are ten years. Yeah, Atsuko was saying she's at year eleven. She thinks it was about year ten ish too. I can even feel it now. I started doing stand up again after like a twenty year break seven years ago. Yeah, and I feel like I'm probably just now on the verge of figuring it out. Yeah, which means I feel bad for everyone who's paid to see me. Oh the last gosh. bunch of years. <laughs> part, of, part of it too, like to answer the question too, is like part of it's about creating your own community. Like when I was mm -hmm. in college, like I like hung out with my improv group all the time, you know, and I got out of college like, with, you know, Nick and I and our friends Brian and Ed and, were, and Conrad had this group called Little Man and we performed all the time. And we weren't very successful, but we had a nice time. We had a great yeah, time fun. together. We had a lot of laughs, you know? Yeah. And it's like, I, I, I will say like, you know, the laughs I had then, laughs I have now, it's the same yeah. thing that you're striving for, yeah. which is like a community. It could be a community of five people, 10 people who you like to hang out with and do comedy with. Next question. Norman will be next. So Norman, if you could join us. Hey, Judd, Mike. Hello. Uh, thanks again for doing this, guys. Appreciate it. Um, just kind of wanted to touch on this because I know you guys are kind of masters of observational comedy. And for me, that's kind of what's driven my whole storytelling sensibilities and what got me into comedy writing, obviously. But uh, I just want to know, like, you know, what's what would you say is the key to preserving that almost observational eye that you guys have held mm. across all your projects that, you know, makes your work stay this untouchable for this long? How do you keep your observational eye? Well, I try to think of it in these terms, and it usually simplifies it for me. I think a lot about Buddhism, that life is suffering, <laughs> yet we soldier on. <laughs> yeah. And everyone is trying to make their life work. And the thing that makes us laugh is talking to each other about how it's going and <laughs> what are funny. you doing to make it work <laughs> and all the ways it's not working kind of makes us laugh because it's so human and funny the way we stumble yes. as we're figuring stuff out we're all in the process of evolving and learning yeah and the lessons are funny the oh beatings we take that yes. give us a lesson make us laugh as long as it's not cruel or right. you make no progress. Right. Our, girl, our high school girlfriend having another boyfriend is funny because we've all had something yeah. like it. Jumping out the window. <laughs> Jumping through a second story window is funny. It, yeah, it yeah. is. It's funny because you're trying to handle it. How do I make my world yes. work in spite of it? What does it mean? How do I interpret this? Who? How will I live? How will I have a girlfriend? How will I have a family? You, you know, you root for that person just the way you root for anyone just trying to make their life work. And so for me, at some point I thought, no matter, if you get more specific, it becomes more universal. Even if the specific isn't the same thing other people have, on some level, they do feel like the person jumping out the window. They have yeah. their version yeah, certainly. of it. And that's what I'm generally observing. So if I'm making This Is 40 and Paul Rudd is hiding in the bathroom on his iPad, just avoiding the family, trying to get a break. Yeah. I'm observing that of myself. And then the the thing that people relate to, because that's like a weird thing that everyone related to because it was earlier in yeah. technology yeah. of 
the way we make our little escapes to yeah. get a second because we're all trying so hard to do right by everybody, but we're also feel, we feel like we're taking a beating and and failing so much that we're we're all hiding in the bathroom yeah. in some respect. Yeah, like Ira Glass is one of the best observationalists I know personally, and I think it's partly because he interviews so many people mm. for his show. He's yeah. constantly carrying a shotgun microphone around the country and going, "Hey, how do you how do you feel about this?" or whatever. And he's just a big listener. He asks a lot of questions. Like people who ask a lot of ask more questions than they answer generally are pretty good observationalists. And people are weird. <laughs> people are weird. If you pay any attention, pay attention. to anyone, yeah. it's all there. Yeah, it's all there. It's just it's all there. What Gary Shanling always talked about was that people wear a mask and they have the way they want to be seen, mm -hmm. which is very different than who they are inside. Yes. And so we're all saying, oh, I'm comedy guy. I'm doing well. And then if you follow me out of the room, you see what it really is. Yes. And, and that's where the comedy comes from. And if you observe anyone, you notice there's the truth and then there's the, the mask. Yeah. Write it And write it all down. Write it up. That's what I always say to people. <laughs> write it up, yeah. That's a great idea. Write it up. <laughs> Most people don't write it up. You got to well, write it up. Well, you've had a really interesting experience over the years with like Amy Schumer, for example, where- She like, wrote it up. Yeah, she wrote it up. So like, so you heard her on Stern and she's talking about some of these really interesting stories about her life and you sort of called her and were like, this is a movie. Yeah. Let's make this as a movie. And she wrote it up. I mean, that's it. Is that there was a moment where we talked about what the movie could be and we, we talked about, you know, some of the beats. And then she just sent me 20 pages. Yeah. And they were good. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it's in the movie. Yeah. And I just went, oh, <laughs> she can really do this. She, yeah. Because uh, you don't know. So you read something with, with tons of people. You're waiting to see, can they translate these thoughts and feelings yes. onto the page? Yes. So how do you know when your show is done, the one you're working on now? Yeah. Because the, the themes are very deep. Yeah. How do you know when you oh my are gosh. getting close to having it, or or at least maybe it's, the main ideas have landed? It's so it, it, it's funny because it, with every show it's different. When I know it's done is like I I tour, you know, I'm in the middle of touring fifty cities right now, and and uh, when I start to get to a point where when the when we cut to black and the lights come up, I can just see in the audience's face that there's an experience that's happened. Mm -hmm. And I go, okay, we're close. Yeah, I can keep refining this and I can keep making this punchline better and blah, blah, blah. But fundamentally, this story, that's what this is. Yeah. But uh, do you ever get bored of doing the show? Do you ever think to yourself, I don't know if I could do keep saying this for another year or two? I don't get bored of the show. Although, you know, what's funny is, is like, you know, I do, I do some performances for my audience, like the other night in Dallas and... You know, I've done shows in Denver and Seattle and everything. And those are for my audience. And then every now and then I'll, be, I'll get booked at like, you know, a college or a corporate event or something that's not my audience. And it's just sort of general everybody yeah. who got invited to that event. And then I really see what the show is. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm like, how does this hold up under the stress test of these people do not know who you are. They do not care. Mm -hmm. And those actual those shows teach me the most yeah. about what the show is because I go okay when it's not the audience that you know when people buy a ticket they're invested in the show being pretty good yeah but when they didn't buy a ticket that's when you know if you have something <laughs> or not. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna wrap up, but uh, thanks for joining us on celebration. Sicker in the head. It's for, it was it's all for charity for eight to six for free tutoring uh, and literacy programs for kids in different programs around the country that eight to six runs that Dave Eggers uh, mm -hmm. uh, started that, uh, that organization. My grammar was so bad in explaining the literacy program there. I like said everything like backwards. So I, I need. I'd say I think that the only proper way to describe a literacy program yeah. <laughs> is with really bad grammar. But anyway, all the money goes to them. But thank you for doing this, Mike. Thanks for having I could me. Do, I could do it for five hours more. I feel I'm just scratching the surface. I, I was know. frustrated 40 minutes in with my time restraint. Working it out, cause it's not done. 
We're working it out because there's no That's going to do it for another episode of Working It Out with Judd Apatow. Uh, he is phenomenal. His book is phenomenal. It's called Sicker in the Head. We want to thank Penguin Random House for setting this whole thing up. Uh, you can follow Judd at Judd Apatow. Uh, you could follow him on Instagram at Judd Apatow. You can follow him on Twitter at Judd Apatow. You can watch his movies wherever there are movies. You can watch his television shows wherever there are television shows. Our producers are working it out. Are myself along with Peter Salamone and Joseph Berbiglia, consulting producer Seth Barish, sound mix by Kate Belinsky, associate producer Mabel Lewis. Special thanks to my consigliere Mike Berkowitz, as well as Marissa Hurwitz and Josh Upfall. As always, a very special thanks to my wife, the poet J. Hope Stein. Great news about our book. Our book is called The New One and it is a finalist for the Thurber Prize for American Humor. We couldn't be more honored. It is a, it is a big labor of love. Uh, we appreciate you reading it and listening to the audiobook. Um, the Thurber House is in Columbus, Ohio. It's a phenomenal museum. Uh, it's just, I couldn't recommend it more highly. As always, a special thanks to Jack Antonoff and Bleachers for their music. They are on tour. Now they're going everywhere. They're going to London right around when I'm going to London. So you could, you know, go one night to Bleachers, one night to Berbiglia. As always, a special thanks to my daughter, Una, who helped create a radio fort made of pillows. Thanks most of all to you who are listening. Tell your friends and, and thank you for also telling your enemies. They need to know we're working it out. We'll see you next time, everybody.